Hi, this is Malia Cromer, director of the Goucher College Poll, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, a source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy viewed favorably by an overwhelming majority of Marylanders. Welcome to the Condo Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we're recording virtually Wednesday, June 2nd. We have a fantastic guest today, and I'm certainly excited about it. I am too, Kevin. Uh, since we've brought this, this uh, podcast out to a larger audience, and we've been attracting people who are not just interested in counties, but also state policy, state politics, and the processes and systems that underlie all that stuff, We've got exactly the right kind of listener for our guest today. Uh, Professor Todd Eberly is one of those voices you need to be paying attention to if you're into state policy and politics. We're lucky to have him as a guest today. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I always enjoy an opportunity to talk about Maryland politics. So, Professor Eberly, Professor of Political Science and Coordinator of Public Policy Studies at St. Mary's College of Maryland. Of course, Professor, you are a published author, and your commentary often appears in publications like The Sun and The Washington Post. You've also been named one of the most influential voices in Maryland politics. Professor Eberly, how did you get into this beat? Tell us a little bit about you know, what you do and where you fit in in the Maryland political landscape. Sure. So, uh you know, I tell my, my students um, that it, it's really important that people engage in policy analysis, that, that the ability to, to look at policy dispassionately and offer um, an analytical perspective really expands um, our, our policy capacity. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, there weren't a lot of people uh, focusing on Maryland politics uh, whenever I, I started teaching at St. Mary's College. And I decided I wanted to, to really help to fill that void. Uh, one of the things, of course, I tell my students is we can offer all the analysis um, that, that we want, but in the end, the decisions are going to be made by, um, you know, elected officials or by um, appointed policymakers. You know, that's fine. Uh, the best that we can do is at least uh, allow those to be uh, educated decisions. So that's that's what I'm trying to do is help folks understand what's going on and help the decisions be educated decisions. Professor Aberley, I'll, I'll volunteer that I think there's an important station in the political process for people who do the kind of thing that you do extremely well. Um, I guess, you know, for years we could sort of count on the media being the, the disinterested player who would report things as they were happening and go in depth on certain topics, but try and keep all of us aware of what was happening through the political process. It's a little bit of it as accountability, but also sort of helping people digest and analyze what's going on in the political process. Uh, you know, we're, we're all in Maryland and we're all pointing, you know, pointing our, our eyes and minds toward Annapolis and the process that happens there. But I, I feel every state really deserves a cadre of people who think and behave that way, not just stakeholders, not just somebody who desperately wants this thing to pass. Those people are probably going to be there 
anyway. But the people who just want everybody to understand, by the way, that was a really big vote that happened last week, and here's why. We need people doing that. And if the newspapers might not be able or willing to take that full role that a generation ago they did, I feel like interested and involved academics like you have an important role. So not to put you on the spot, but... Um, do, do you see that that complementary part of the system as being part of your calling and policy? A- absolutely. Um, I started out actually as um, a policy professional before I, I began uh, to teach. I worked as a contract a contractor for the state of Maryland, um, helping to design and evaluate um, public health programs. Basically, I was the detached voice. I, I didn't have um, um, skin in the game. I was simply there to tell them whether or not things were working and what could be done um, to make them work better. And what I found, of course, was a lot of people really didn't understand the process uh, by which policies made, didn't understand what was happening behind the scenes. And I became ever more uh, interested in the idea of, of teaching that. And that really did motivate me to get my, my PhD and, and ultimately become a professor of public policy uh, who also covers, um, you know, American politics uh, and state level politics. So, Professor Everly, on that note, I mean, I think we we talk about it often. It's certainly a rallying cry for me. I mean, do you see with your students this fascination toward national politics? I mean, really, if you want to know where the rubber meets the road and, and where the action is, it, it's state and local government. But so many people are just transfixed on national politics and all the polarization there. Is that something that you see with, with your students as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you think about it, uh, the, the 24-hour news cycle is dominated by national um, you know, news channels like CNN, uh, Fox or MSNBC. We have media consolidation going on where local papers are being bought out uh, by larger organizations. Um, staff and reporters are being reduced. And increasingly, what we think of as our local papers are are actually covering more national news uh, and less local news. So that even um, forces our um, attention towards the national level. And then, you know, as politics has become so much more polarized, we see it playing out at the presidential level. We see it playing out in in the the House and the Senate nationally. And that really does tend to take up uh, all the oxygen. But you're right. Um, most of the policy that affects us day to day is policy that is enacted at the state and, and local level. And if you're not paying attention to that, you're missing a crucial element of those things that affect your day to day life. I, I, I think it's interesting you mention a polarization in the political and the policy process. And this actually, to me, feels like a natural follow-up. Talking about the, the federal level and then the state and local level, it, it does feel like polarization is is drifting into almost everything. And you know, maybe the issue of the moment that makes that point as clear as anything is the way Americans tend to be thinking about all the coronavirus responses and so forth, whether it's the government role in business operations and things like mandated use of masks and and distancing and so forth, all the way to where we are now, 
with people's willingness to receive and take a vaccine, uh, all, all of those issues now seem to have a tinge of red and blue polarity that I'm not sure it was obvious to all of us that would have to go this way. But uh, it seems like that's the nature of our politics today as an observer and, and commenter on these things. Is that something you're feeling and worried about too these days? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, my, my second book was titled Polarized. Uh, and that was uh, written several years ago. And, and things have only uh, gotten worse. I mean, it, it, it really did not dawn on me or occur to me that we would reach a point where we would politicize uh, a pandemic. And whether or not you wore a mask or whether or not you got a, a vaccine would become part of your political identity. It's, it's really not even based on an ideology anymore. It's just each side defining themselves by taking the opposite position of the other side. And that is not um, conducive to effective policymaking. I mean, it really does hamper our ability to respond to some of the bigger challenges that we face. One of the, the issues that I think will be pretty polarizing. The, the Governor Hogan announced just this week that Maryland would end the supplemental benefits for federal unemployment. This is federal money. The governor joins 24 other states who have decided to end these benefits early. They've told the federal government, no thanks, we don't need the money anymore. And the idea seems to be that there are so many people looking for people to come and work for them. But the thinking here is that maybe these enhanced benefits are actually dissuading people from going out and looking for jobs. And I think we've already seen some pushback from Democrats who are saying, wait a second, this is, this is not the way we should be doing this. There are a lot of people still suffering. So I feel like that is going to be a polarizing issue sort of moving forward as this, as this gets more steam nationally, which states have decided to end early and which have not. Right, absolutely. And, and of course, a part of this conversation is you know, is it the, the expanded benefits that are um, preventing people from, from going back to work? Or is it the larger issue of schools not being fully reopened, uh, childcare centers not being open? Uh, if you look at the jobs numbers from, from last month, um, it, it was really uh, women uh, who were hit hard or, or were not making the job gains. They still tend to be the primary caregiver. So it, it, it at least suggests that this is much more complicated than just, uh, well, the benefits are so good, people, people aren't going to work. Um, we'll know a bit more whenever Maryland's job numbers come out um, soon. And then beyond that, as, as daycare centers, child care centers, and what have you begin to reopen, we're going to be able to look at the states that are keeping the supplemental benefits and the states that have eliminated them and get a sense for, for you know, how that has changed. But, you know, that has become a political lightning rod. Uh, whether or not the schools are open or closed has become a political lightning rod. It, it's just you name the issue. And we have managed to to um, recede into our camps on, on either side of it. Just to, to close out this discussion about polarization, Professor, I mean, in your work and, and from what you've seen, what do you think the influence of social media is on this polarization? I mean, you said, though, years ago, your second book was titled Polarization. And, and obviously, 
we've seen a huge uptick in social media usage, but how much has that fanned the flame, so to speak, in your mind, in terms of, of America being so polarized at this point on, on just about every issue? Yeah, it, it absolutely feeds it. Um, what, what most people you know, have to keep in mind is most Twitter posts are generated by a relatively small number of uh, Twitter users. And the, the people who post politics to social media tend to be more polarizing people. So you're reading posts and you're seeing things trend that originate from folks who are um, to the extreme of one side or the other. So they tend to dominate um, the conversation. In the days before social media, it, it was harder for folks who you know might've been outliers at one time uh, to build a community and, and to be heard, it is really simple now. And of course, say something controversial, say something intentionally polarizing, and you're pretty much guaranteed that you're going to get uh, a response, a pushback from the other side. And, and that, that is happening uh, on social media daily. It feels like that has permeated all the facets of this the, the pandemic and the response. And we have some people who are fuming about shutdowns. Mm -hmm. We have others who are fuming about masks and mandates. Others who are fuming about the people who won't wear the mask or who won't get the <laughs> vaccine. I, I, I agree with you. It's, it's frustrating to see some of these issues become as divisive as they seem to have been. So I'll, I'll, I'll say um, from the, the list of vetoes, there's one that I found really interesting. And like, this, is a, this is a bundled question of messaging and policy, but in part because uh, you had talked about starting out in, in public health issues, which are very near and dear to county governments, um, counties, the county health departments are really the front line for public health issues in this state. And there's one of the bills that's kind of buried in the list of vetoes that I thought was sort of peculiar. The uh, legislature passed a bill to basically say the structure of how we respond to coronavirus going forward ought to be according to all the things in this new bill. And you know, back in March and April, the legislative leadership, principally the Democratic Party, um, came up with a series of, we should do this, we should do that, we should fund this at this many dollars, and the department shall issue these plans to these people and so forth. And to some degree, it was saying, we're not sure Maryland has gotten this quite right, we'd like to see it go a different way. The governor vetoed that bill on Friday, and the messaging element was it was on a long list and not necessarily at the top of that list. And then structure of government, it, uh, observation is that that bill actually is probably going to be almost completely mooted by the virtue of the governor vetoing the bill. Even if they come back in January and override the veto, half of the, at least half of the relevant stretch of time will have already passed and it won't right. mean much of anything. Um, any thoughts about like about those sort of issues? And is it just hard to message you veto a COVID bill? Oh, are you a denier or whatever? Yeah, I mean, it, it is hard to message that. And I think that's why not much was um, said about it. Uh, and it's interesting, too, because for the most part, you know, of course, um, the Democrats in the assembly uh, have been very positive uh, about um, Governor Hogan's response to this. 
you know, there have been a few dust ups, for instance, you know, the, the, um, the tests uh, that he bought from um, mm-hmm. Korea, but right. you know, other than that, he's gotten more pushback from Republicans than he has from Democrats. So it was, it was sort of an odd thing to see them um, at loggerheads uh, on this at the end of the session. I want to get into to the session. We've talked obviously a lot about the 2021 session. It was remarkable in many ways. And a lot of people were concerned as the session kicked off that they wouldn't even be able to get through it. Mm-hmm. We, like many, thought, okay, this is going to be a bare bone session. They'll pass the bills they need to pass. We know about the high profile issues and then they'll move on. But that's not what we saw, Professor. And we saw a lot of bills, actually, a lot of pre-filed bills as well. Any big takeaways for you on process or just generally about the 2021 session? Well, I mean, first, but my, my hat is off to them um, for making it work. Uh, the protocols that they put in place, um, the, the virtual uh, approach to, to holding session and, and committee hearings, um, the... <laughs> the plexiglass uh, little aquariums or terrariums that, that they put themselves in. Um, it worked. The phone booths, right. Yeah, yeah. And it wound up being an incredibly productive session. And you consider, you know, last year when it had to end early uh, because of all of this, you're, you're right. Folks were wondering what would this session be about? Would it be intently focused um, on uh, uh, coronavirus, COVID, and, and not much else? And in the end, they took on some some very big issues um, from, uh, you know, voting rights uh, to uh, police reform, sort of tapping into that national democratic agenda, that push um, for for greater police uh, accountability. Um, I mean, there are things that, you know, they still haven't touched. Um, For instance, um, uh, legalization of marijuana, for instance, just just for the sake of the tax revenue. You would think that that would be something they'd be a bit more open to, uh, but of course that that didn't happen. On that, Professor, I'm interested. So we've talked about you know adult use cannabis, and from a county perspective, I think the the legislation that we've seen in recent years sort of checks the boxes. It it provides counties with the flexibility of whether or not they want to participate, and it also allows them to tax locally. Uh, cannabis for adult use. You mentioned, of course, they did not pass that bill this year or in in the the previous few years. Do you think that is because maybe they want to put that question on the ballot, Democrats, to drive turnout? Or do you think it's just too complicated of an issue? And especially this year, it it was just too much for them to, to carry forward. Well, I mean, I think clearly there there was not a priority on it um, this session. For for some members of the legislature, it has been a, a priority uh, for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea of putting it on the ballot and, and trying to, to boost turnout, I, I could see that happening. But, it, you know, that, that probably would be an okay strategy because, of course, in 2022, you're going to have a Democratic uh, incumbent having his very first midterm election. Uh, even in Maryland, uh, historically, that has has caused um, some movement uh, in the direction of Republicans. Not dramatic, but it, it does happen. And um, legalization uh, probably would be a way, especially to, to boost turnout among young voters who tend to vote Democratic. I think there's there's logic to, to there's political logic to to making the timing coincide with a state level election a gubernatorial cycle so i mean there's some there's some argument there and 
I think maybe the smart money is that in the 22 session, we could see some additional motivation on this issue and mm-hmm. you know, with an eye toward a ballot. The last time our county leaders sat down with legislative leaders and talked about this topic, there didn't seem to be even unanimity in the legislative leadership about whether probably a constitutional amendment that would require voter, you know, voter approval, simply legislation. We've seen, I guess it was Illinois, maybe a couple other states have just passed a bill like mm-hmm. any other bill and said right. hey, heretofore this is now the state policy and without necessarily the cloak the voter approval it's not really required you have to sort of come up with a machination like a constitutional amendment in maryland we don't do the initiative here so that is that is one of the more interesting issues that's long background um you, you did mention police reforms and that obviously was we knew it was going to be a high profile coming in um you mentioned the the governor just vetoed a few other pieces of the larger package, did a few during the legislative session that have already since been overridden and enacted through through that process. Do you have any bigger picture thoughts about how something like police reform fits in a state like Maryland that is seen nationally as a bright blue state, but obviously has some more complicated contours? If I mean, you don't need any more evidence than we've got a second term popular Republican governor, um, you know, serving here. And any thoughts about that issue and how it fits in this peculiar Maryland politics landscape? Sure, because, of course, this is another issue that um, folks have chosen to go into their two camps on. Um, We heard it during the debate in the General Assembly. Uh, Governor Hogan uh, said as well, you know, that if you pass these, these reforms, you're likely to have um, less people willing to apply uh, for the job to become a police officer. There might be, you know, less effective protection and it may harm, you know, the very communities that, that folks say that they are trying to protect. Um, but there is a, a larger conversation that, that does need to, to be had. Um, and, and it's unfortunate that it has sort of fallen into to these camps. You know, I when I when I've talked to um, Republicans who sort of reflexively um, think that these reform bills are are you know bad or are going to uh, hamstring the police, you know, one way to sort of think about this, and and I want to preface this by saying I have tremendous respect uh, for police officers. I absolutely agree that the vast majority of them are are good people who are there trying to protect us, and they risk their lives every day. Um, but from a conservative perspective. The other way to sort of think about this is, you know, the police are part of government. Um, They are agents of the state. And conservatism, at least uh, from my perspective, would be there's got to be accountability and oversight. And and the more power that we entrust someone with, the more you would want that oversight um, to be there. Um, But, you know, it's it's sort of gone into uh, its two camps. That's that's where it is. I mean, I, I wish we could have a better conversation about it, but I, I don't think that, you know, a good across the aisle uh, conversation is going to be happening. I think that's probably a, a fair assessment, but you're, you're absolutely right that we heard an awful lot of those elements in the debate in our state legislature um, that, that, that felt like 
the, you know, it was very hard to find a middle ground. And right. there were pieces that emerged, but then ended up not making it into the final resolution. And that's, you know, to, to some degree, that's, that's, that's the natural outcome when you have one supermajority party right. who, who coalesces around one view of a divisive issue like this is, the, you know, the, the elections have consequences, right? That's, I mean, that's, that's how it's supposed to work nominally. But um, I think a lot of people did feel like there were missed opportunities for some middle grounds on, on an issue like that. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it happens you know, over the next few years in implementation and if some of the concerns you know, come, to, come to pass. Sure. Yeah, I mean, if, if there's one thing that I just wish um, people were more willing to accept, compromise is not a dirty word, and compromise <laughs> does not mean selling out. Um, our entire constitution is based on the idea of to get anything done realistically, you've got to compromise. Um, but, but we have forgotten that. Uh, we now sort of retreat to our bases, and everybody wants to motivate um, their base to turn out. And to do that, you really run on what I call the politics of the stark contrast. You just define yourself as the opposite of, of what the other party is. Um, that's not ideological. It doesn't necessarily make sense, but it motivates the voters that uh, they're trying to motivate. As you talk about compromise and polarization, I, I want to shift gears just a, a little bit and talk about, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Twitter as a social media universe. And I know that the Twitterverse has its own faults and, and weaknesses and so forth. I would really recommend all, all the people who are listening to this podcast. And now they totally get why we wanted to have you on as a guest because you're interesting and insightful on the topics that we care about. So now like, okay, you want to go follow Todd Eberly on Twitter because you're a really interesting follow. You talk about a lot of stuff, but I'm interested in how do you maintain that kind of a public persona knowing that the world you operate in the political world is full of people who have so much, you know, you know so, so much polarity and, and so much resentment for the other side. And you almost can't get into Twitter without ending up, you know, having some collateral damage. Um, right. I recommend people to follow your Twitter account, but uh, what, what goes into that? You, you don't want to get too, uh, too much debris, right? Right. Right. Um, and I mean, I mean, I will say uh, in the in the pre-Trump era, uh, I tended not to um, state personal opinions uh, on issues. Uh, that was rather rare. Um, there there were things happening in the in the Trump presidency that that really, uh, as a political scientist, um, bothered me. Um, that I, I felt the need to to sort of point out and call out. Uh, and then, of course, when you saw what happened on January 6th, I, I think that that ultimately some of that concern uh, was shown to be warranted. But, yeah, you you get you get pushback and you get blowback on that. Uh, but I always try um, to make clear, you know, this is the reason uh, I'm, I'm, you know, drawing your attention to this or, or why I'm concerned about that. Uh, and it's it's you know, it's it's not an ideological opposition. It's. It's not that I oppose um, Republicans or that I oppose Democrats. I, I'm a process guy and I'm a rules guy. And um, it, it bothers me when the process isn't respected 
It, it bothers me when the rules are, are circumvented and I don't care you know, which party's doing it, uh, I'm, I'm gonna call it out because I think that it causes long-term damage to our system. So, so if, if, you, if you feel like the issue of the day is a little more complicated than just this vote or this interview, but rather if, if one of our two major political parties is, is maybe realigning its own North Star, mm-hmm. that's a matter of import to anybody who follows politics and policy, and it's worth talking about, you know, at a level even deeper than just hey, this bill failed for some reason. Is that, is that a fair way to look at that? Right, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, having a conversation about what it means uh, for the Republican Party to, say, oust someone uh, like Liz Cheney from leadership, who is a true uh, conservative, uh, and they replaced her with someone who, who really doesn't have um, ideologically conservative um, uh, credentials, that, that's a conversation that I think is an interesting conversation to have. Uh, you know, what has become of, uh, of conservatism in, in this case? Um, so those are the kinds of conversations I, I like to have. Personally, I mean, we are big Oxford comma people here. So <laughs> I, was really, I was really happy to see over the past few days, your fervent advocacy for the Oxford comma. Yeah, I will absolutely die on that hill. Um, the Oxford comma must remain and I'm not, I, I don't understand why anyone uh, would, would choose to try to do away with it. And has, has no, no connection at all to like how many tons of coal, like, you know, you don't need a convoluted example, but um, yeah, there was you know, the piece about, you know, uh, Senator Harry Reid right. recently where uh, like a headline article made it sound like he was the lead singer for a band. I, I forgot the, the details, but right. it was a class, it was a classic case study of, the need for appropriate commas to delineate elements of a list. I'm all for it too. So. Right, and of course, we, we live in a world where um, because of social media, so much of our communication is now text-based and not conversational. So that kind of clarity uh, is necessary. Shifting well, gears just a little again, <laughs> uh, Professor. So uh, M- Michael mentioned earlier just the, you know, the, the electorate here in Maryland and I want to get your thoughts on where we are, and I'm interested to know whether you think, you know, a two-term Republican governor here, Governor Hogan, indicates that Maryland is purple or shifting in that direction, or if it's just this governor, if it's just a one-time circumstance. I mean, you dig into the numbers, you look at the electorate. What are your thoughts here? Are, are, are we shifting? Are we there? Where is Maryland? Are we still blue? Yeah, I mean, Maryland is um, still a, a blue state. I, I mean, I think that's that's safe to say. That, that doesn't mean it's boring, uh, but Democrats do dominate. I mean, they've got super majorities in, in the House uh, and, and the Senate. They, they've got um, uh, all but one of the seats uh, in our, our congressional delegation. I mean, both of those are partially driven uh, by gerrymandering, but, but not entirely. But one of the things that really interested me, uh, back around 2010, I noticed a trend, and that trend was in local offices, Republicans were gaining. And in 2010, they actually hit uh, 50% of all uh, local offices were held by Republicans. And this, mm-hmm. this was a real historic change for Maryland. And that continued to grow under the Obama years. What happened, of course, though, was in 
the 2018 election, Republicans in the state took a real drubbing and the gains that they had been making in those local offices fell off dramatically. So I am very eager uh, for the 2022 election with a Democrat in the White House. What's going to happen in Maryland? Mm -hmm. Will Republicans make some gains um, or will Donald Trump continue to motivate um, Democratic voters to turn out? As, as you mentioned, local elected officials as part of that conversation, you're obviously piquing our interest uh, representing counties. I, I remember back to the, the 2018 election in, in a place like Frederick County, mm-hmm. which uh, you dial back 15 years ago was fairly reliably red, and there would be occasionally one commissioner or two might pop through in an at-large election as a Democrat, but they were largely a Republican county. They've since shifted to a council, but what I thought was most interesting there were they have two at-large seats on their county council. And in the general election in Frederick County, the difference between uh, in, in the general election with the final two Democrats and final two Republicans you could basically throw a blanket across the top four finishers. I think, if I remember correctly, it ended up being one D and one R getting the two seats. But the difference between first and fourth was like maybe two or at most three um, percent. That, that to me, is a pretty strong – you set aside personality and incumbency in a county executive race. But in a countywide at-large council race, that's probably closer to party – than deep personal affiliation, I would guess. Um, that seems like a truly purple county. I don't know what's going to happen in the next round in, in Frederick County, but uh, that'll be a seriously, that'll be a hotly contested and much watched uh, spot, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, as, as folks have um, moved out of um, Montgomery County or PG County and, and moved uh, to Frederick, um, they've taken their politics with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, Republicans used to be very, um, very bullish on, on Frederick uh, County because it was growing so fast and they thought that that was going to be a source of strength for them. And I think they're seeing the numbers now and, and they, they should be uh, concerned. Uh, Trump, of course, carried it uh, four years ago. Uh, Biden carried uh, Frederick County in, in the most recent election. And you don't have to go back that far where you know, the Democrat uh, carrying Frederick County would just not have been something that you would have predicted. It it has absolutely become a purple county. Do do you think there's any chance that areas that are moving toward purple might end up through their local politics, at least being to some degree, maybe the salve we need for this polarization that maybe you can't be a winner in a place like Frederick County if you're way to the extreme and either side that, I mean, there have to be people who are pliable on either listening to the policy and the specifics rather than just, you know, here's the column I vote for. Is it possible that those are the areas that could lead the way for some degree of compromise and moderation? Uh, Absolutely. Because the folks who are elected from the districts within those areas know that they have got to uh, appeal to beyond just their own party uh, in order to stay in office. And, and they're going to bring that to the debates that they'll, they'll have um, in the assembly. 
um, county executives are going to bring that to the table whenever um, you know they're working with the, the council on, on what to do. Uh, much like uh, nationally, it is the folks from purple states and purple districts that that tend to be um, the voices of compromise and, and the voices of reason. It's just that you know again, uh, things like uh, gerrymandering have made um, purple congressional districts, for instance, uh, a bit less likely. Uh, and, of, and we know that um, here in Maryland, um, we have gerrymandering as well, not only in the congressional districts, but in the state legislative districts. So, um, you know, the opportunity for purple areas, at, at least at a district level, are, are becoming less and less. Care to expand with any other thoughts about the district drawing process? And we, we, we had the Secretary of Planning on a, a few weeks ago talking about data from the census and how we sculpted into what we need to, to draw districts and so forth. But, you know, the courts have weighed in and sort of passed on the opportunity to tell states, you know, to really confine states on, on the process for district drawing. Do you think it'll just be open season for strange monster shapes in Maryland, like in some other places? Or uh, do you think we might have a different look and feel this go round in part with a different governor? Yeah, so of course, I mean, the, the assembly has the ability to, you know, produce their own map, uh, regardless of what the, the governor proposes. I suspect that Governor Hogan is going to introduce a, a map that has much more compact um, districts, districts that tend to respect um, existing county lines or, or other political subdivisions. And it'll probably be a map that, that better reflects um, the, the political distribution of the state. Uh, that map will not succeed um, because Democrats in Maryland know what's going to happen in uh, Republican states, like in Texas, for instance, uh, where they've gained uh, uh, two seats. Uh, Democrats, I suspect, are going, I wouldn't be surprised if they actually introduced uh, a map in Maryland that uh, created uh, all Democratic districts uh, in the state. In other words, eliminating Andy Harris's opportunity for, for re-election by redrawing that map. I just think the politics right now are so polarized that the idea of a free and fair process is just going to be a casualty. Yeah, and I mean, district drawing generally, there are, it, it's all political, no matter where you are. There are different thoughts on commissions or sort of software that can sort of come up with AI technology to figure out the best way to do it. But inherently, it's political. And so it, it's not it's not just Maryland, but uh, but obviously we have attracted national attention for some of our gerrymandering. So that's that's also coming up. Right. And that's going to be mm -hmm. fascinating and how that plays out moving forward between the, the governor and the General Assembly. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, watching that closely 10 years ago, um, hoping that, that maybe uh, there, there would be some semblance of a, a nonpartisan approach. <laughs> Of course, that's that's not what happened. Uh, it, it's this idea of um, Democrats uh, in Maryland quite rightly say, why should they unilaterally disarm? <laughs> when they know that Republicans in another state are going to aggressively draw those district lines. Um, and that's that's what keeps it going. So it would really take some sort of national reform to end it. Right. I was I was actually queuing up that exact phrase, the unilateral disarmament, because we universally hear that as the centerpiece argument why, 
you know, if a state like Maryland decides to back off on drawing advantageous districts to its majority party without there being some, you know, some agreement that other, you know, states with a different alignment would do the same, um, you've acted contrary to your own, you know, maybe, you know, centerpiece political views and so forth. I, I, I get the argument. I don't know what the solution is. We don't have any, uh, mutually assured destruction um, lingering in the background. Although, I guess this raises another question I think is interesting at the national level and maybe at the state level. Do do you think that a divided government, that Maryland has now gone through eight years or virtually eight years of a Hogan administration, um, obviously the only way that happens in a state like this is with a fair number of Democratic, I guess, mm-hmm. Democratic Party members or Democratic-leaning voters to decide to vote for the Republican governor, and then apparently decide to do so again. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you think there's something philosophical there that I means, to some degree, maybe Americans like a divided national government that prevents the more extreme points of view from prevailing, and we tend not to have the House, Senate, and White House in the same hands. For very long at the national right. level, is is there anything like that creeping up in Maryland? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, th- as as the nation has become more polarized, and in Maryland for the longest time, um, the Democratic Party in the state was or, or quite a big tent party. I mean, it was mm-hmm. home to very conservative members as far as well as very uh, liberal members um, during the the O'Malley um, years. The party fell a bit more into alignment with where the national party was. And I think when that happened, uh, people especially became more open to the idea of uh, having a check on power. Um, just like, you know, it's it's pretty much normal in America that when there's a midterm election, the party that's not in the White House is going to do incredibly well. I think it's just somewhere in our DNA that we like the idea of checking power and not giving too much uh, to one party uh, at any one time. So, you know, what happens in 2022 is is going to be interesting to me. A lot of it depends on who um, the gubernatorial uh, nominee is. Uh, Hogan has had great success, not really running as a Republican, but running as Larry Hogan. I think that has worked uh, great to his advantage. So it'll be curious to see uh, who else gets into the gubernatorial race? Do we get into a battle between uh, the the Hoganites and uh, the more um, you know Trump base of the Republican Party, which of course uh, does exist in Maryland? Uh, I'll be very curious to see if that happens. So, Professor Eberly, we've covered a lot of ground here today. I think we we have a really good idea of where you think Maryland's electorate is and your view on the session and, and sort of the political landscape in Maryland currently. Again, a lot of ground. Anything else that you can think of that might be useful for our audience, county officials or others who are just interested in state and local public policy? Any closing thoughts from you? Uh, yeah, I mean... Do your best to, to stay informed and, and do get involved. Don't let yourself sort of buy into the notion that all the action is happening at the national level. Um, this, this legislative session, as we said early on, turned out to be incredibly uh, productive uh, when folks weren't thinking it necessarily would have been. 
And it would be a shame if, if folks were distracted from that uh, because they were more focused on sort of the national uh, politics that were going on, uh, whether it be over COVID or, or anything else. And, you know, don't buy into the idea that, that Maryland is just sort of boring. It, it's a blue state and, and that's it. Um, you really miss a much more fascinating story um, if, you, if you buy into that idea. Maryland politics is truly, truly worth studying. Couldn't have said it better myself. Professor Everly, thank you so much for joining us today. Great conversation. Michael, any closing thoughts from you before we wrap up? This is a big check the box moment for me, and I suspect for a bunch of our listeners, um, we, we're really happy to have you join us. And this feels like really good timing for this bigger picture conversation about where we are in policy and politics. Uh, but, you know, the winds are going to keep blowing in multiple directions. We'd love to have you back on to have a similar sort of thing as, you know, the, the deck is going to get reshuffled and dealt out again before all that long. We'd love to do this again. Oh, I never turned down an opportunity to talk about Maryland politics <laughs> with other folks, so happily. All right. Well, thank you so much again, and we'll leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can go ahead and subscribe. That way, all these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Professor Todd Eberly, Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.